For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, Adiba Nelson talks with Tarana Burke, who 10 years ago laid the groundwork for sexual assault survivors to use the MeToo hashtag. And I'll talk to filmmaker John Waters about why he's already feeling the Christmas spirit on his way to Tucson. Plus, here two scientists share their excitement over a new book that pays tribute to the beauty of the planet Mars. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Regular listeners have heard Adiba Nelson's essays on Arizona Spotlight before. Next, in a special edition of her feature, The Word, Adiba talks to Tarana Burke, the director of Just Be, Inc., a youth organization focused on the health, well-being, and wholeness of young women of color. Ten years ago, Burke became the founder of the Me Too movement, which is now playing an important part in America's conversation about sexual assault and its survivors. Here's Adiba Nelson with the interview. According to the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, one out of every six women and one in 33 men has experienced sexual assault. This includes me. As survivors, we often cope with shame, fear, and isolation. But the Me Too movement, in conjunction with the social media hashtag MeToo, is working to replace those emotions with a new feeling, empathy. I needed to know where Tarana Burke found the strength to begin this movement. I have been working with young people for many years, and at some point, my friend and I, who were doing the work together, um, realized that the girls that we were working with needed like a different kind of attention. Mm-hmm. And so we started an organization called Just Be Inc. Mm-hmm. And through that organization, we worked with girls in high school and then in seventh and eighth grade and realized that, you know, these girls kept revealing like their experiences with sexual violence to us. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they wouldn't say, like they would say, I've had this experience, but they would tell us stories and we'd be like horrified because we knew like when you're 12 year old, seventh grade student says that they have a 21-year-old boyfriend, that that's, that's violence happening, and she's having sex with this person, that's a crime. So, you know, just knowing that we needed to find a way to reach them and to identify with them, and part of that was through sharing our own stories. They needed an exchange of empathy that let them know and see that they weren't alone and that they weren't, like, they were normal. The thing that happens to them is it doesn't make them some sort of anomaly. And you, you said in there that they needed that empathy. And I know that the motto for the movement is empowerment through empathy. Yep. So as a survivor, what do those words actually mean? Empowerment through empathy. The thing that we carry as survivors, I think the, the heaviest burden that we carry is a burden of shame, right? And then it's the burden of fear, burden of, of, of uh Fear of being ostracized, fear of not being believed, the shame for what happens to you, feeling complicit. 
And so those feelings, feeling shame and feeling fear are disempowering, right? They don't invite you to um, take charge of your life and move forward in a particular kind of way. And so the idea of empowerment through empathy is about when there's an exchange of empathy between survivors, especially two people who have shared maybe not the same physical experiences, but carry the same, have the same trauma as a result of them, right? You don't have to have the same experience to have, to carry the same kind of trauma. And so when that exchange of empathy happens and the people recognize that they're not alone and that there's some other person, even if it's just one, there's some other person in the world that recognizes, sees them, hears them, and believes them, that that is empowering. What we've seen with the Me Too movement in the last month and a half is this groundswell of support because people, once you see one person and you say, oh, this person is not going to ridicule me, shame me, make me feel any kind of way because they know they have, they've been through it too. It's kind of this whole notion that, you know, I'm not a unicorn. I'm not right. the only one. I'm not crazy. Mm-hmm. This right. is a real thing. Other people are experiencing it. And it's kind of um, lending strength to power, basically. No, that's exactly what it is. And especially when you, when, like, when you started out working with young people, they carry the most fear and shame, I think, because it's so confusing, but they also are the most resilient. And so it was really important for me that we start with young people because, I, you know, like, literally my feeling is that if I could stop a young person from feeling any amount of the pain that I've carried for the last several years, then that's, that's an accomplishment. Where exactly did this movement start for you, Tarana? Well, I was living in Selma, Alabama. Uh, we were doing work with young people locally and um, working in the school district with our Jewel program through, through the Just Be Inc. organization. I know in some other communities, they do have rape crisis centers that are part of the community. They have sexual assault workers that go out and talk to the young people. Were you not seeing that in the community that you were working in? Is that kind of how this came to be? Yeah, absolutely not. There were no, there was a rape crisis center in Selma. They didn't do outreach. They didn't come to the high school. They didn't talk to young people. In fact, when I went to the rape crisis center to check and see like what resources they had, I was informed that you had to go to the police department first, file a report, and then have the police call you back, and then file a report, and then the police would submit something over to the rape crisis center, and then somebody would come from the rape crisis center and meet you at the police station. So it was just these numbers of steps that you had to take that I knew as the lady was talking in my head, I was just like, my kids would never do this. Right, there's no way. Never. No, adults wouldn't do this. So I was like, okay. So we have to do something different. I'm an organizer. I think about this as a social justice issue. And I thought we need to bring, like, what would I do if I was trying to organize people? I would hold a community meeting. I would go door to door. I would go talk to people in schools. I would go talk to churches, right? These are the things that I would do. And so that's what we started doing. We went to the schools and we went to churches and we went to community folk and we talked about it. You know, you and I were moms. We have our own way of dealing with things, of handling things with our children, with our daughters, our sons, and whatnot. But there are some single dads that are raising mm-hmm. girls and boys. This happens to boys as well. Do you have yeah. any insight on how men might be able to lead a conversation about Me Too with other men, like fathers to sons, brothers to brothers, friends and teammates, how do they bridge that bro culture gap? 
So I think it's two separate things. I think that fathers talking to their children should use the same exact model, right? I think that, that the model of creating space for our children to come to us without any consequences, you know, like that same thing about vigilance without fear, particularly with men and their children, right? Because, again, in my situation, I remember being fearful that my father would kill this person and then he would go to jail. And I was sick. And I had all of those, weighed all of those consequences in my little small brain without any context or any adult to help me process and, like, understand the, um, that that wasn't the right way to think about it. So men tend to go to the, to the big bravado, right? You, I'll kill him. You let somebody touch you, I'll kill him. Right, so right. So men talking to their children definitely also have to embrace this idea of, like, not using fear, but teaching vigilance. Um, and then in terms of bro culture and, like, men talking to men, this is a job. The men who are aware and who have created those kind of safe spaces need to talk to each other. There is a way, obviously, that women connect to women. And I think the way that men connect to men a lot of times is unique. Um, even in, in the queer community, people from the community should talk to the people in their, in their own right. community, essentially. And so women have been talking about this forever. And there are some men who get catch on and some men who don't. This is the this is the point in time where other men who know better have to step up and, and be really proactive. Kind of that when you know better, you do better. And this do is better. that time exactly. to do better. Mm-hmm. So yeah. do you feel that the Me Too hashtag is making a positive contribution to the public conversation around sexual assault? Yeah, I do. I don't think in our the history of our country, um, we've had this level of discourse around sexual assault, sexual violence. When Anita Hill happened 25 years ago, it sparked a national conversation around sexual harassment and it sparked the creation of laws, policies, and things like that. And that was a sizable shift in the way we were approaching it. Mm-hmm. I think this is similar, if not greater moment, because it has a global impact. And right. So what we're seeing is people openly discussing sexual violence, is, is openly discussing solutions, talking to each other, talking about things that were taboo for a lot of folks. I'm Adiba Nelson, and I spoke with Tarana Burke, the director of Just Be Inc. and founder of the Me Too movement. You can listen to the complete conversation and find links to resources that provide help to survivors on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. John Waters is the kind of celebrity that people either love or have never heard of. His movies include the 1972 underground shocker Pink Flamingos and the 1988 dance comedy Hairspray that later became a Broadway musical. He's frequently sought out for his expertise on true crime, celebrity scandal, and the trashier side of American art. Just before celebrating his 70th birthday, Waters hitchhiked across America talking to the famous and the homeless for his book, Carsick. 
John Waters loves Christmas so much, he undertakes an annual tour to share his enthusiasm, and he's visiting Tucson this Saturday night. That gave me a chance to talk to one of my true cinematic heroes. Well, it's so odd because I do love Christmas, and I have to buy Christmas presents for a million people. Every year I have an annual Christmas card. I've been signing them down. They're ready. They're ready to go. I send 2,000 of them. I design them myself, so it's a big ordeal every year. So um, I, I like all that, but at the same time, when I'm on the tour, which is now 19 cities, um, I forget it really is Christmas. I just think, oh, this is just a show you're doing, you know what I mean? But then in between, when I'm on a plane every day or in airports, I see people rushing and shopping and singing carols and everything. I think, oh, that's real. But it's kind of a great way to avoid it, even though I don't especially want to avoid it. But at the same time, I feel bad for people that maybe do not believe in the birth of Christ <laughs> that have to constantly have this barrage aimed at them of fake happiness. But I do love Christmas. I have a great time. I have. I decorate my house. I have a Christmas party. I, uh, I, I'm a complete um, real Christmas fanatic. But I understand how some people hate it and how it's pressure and emotional pressure. And if you had, you know, people tell me horrible things that happened to them at Christmas, like their house burned down. Or so many people had the tree fall over on them. That happens <laughs> really a lot. And it's drunkenness or dogs. Liquor is the enemy of Christmas. So share with us an example of a Christmas tradition that you could just do without, something you just wish that we would get rid of. Well, I really hate email Christmas cards. I just push delete. (laughs) Because I, I like the mailman, and I like getting mail every day. And um, if I have a choice of whether to pay things by line or by mail, I still pick mail, thinking of the poor mailman. Otherwise, he'll be out of business. And it is still a pretty good deal for $0.49. Cents. And, and then recently, I've gotten postage due, and they don't even try to collect that anymore. And I feel bad for them. So I kind of wanted to send all my Christmas cards this year with one penny postage due. <laughs> every person got to meet their mailman and had to go find a penny and hand it to him. But I don't know if they even do that anymore. (laughs) That's a lovely notion, though, kind of like enforced community. I think I heard you say once uh, that you prefer books or you like to give books. As Still, a I like gift. to give them and get them, yeah. Sure. So can you mention any um, uh, notable book gifts that you have given or received? Well, I love that I get ones that are pulp softcore porn books before porn was legal with all those great titles. And people really must have bought a lot of them because there are millions of them out in the 60s and 70s. And the titles are really, really hilarious. And, And I do collect them. And they used to be very cheap. And now people that collect books do collect them. So now they aren't so cheap anymore. But I do know certain places around the country that sell them, and they save them for me. And and, uh, they are really amazing, some of the titles that are funny. A fan gave me the other day a book I never knew existed about Isabel Sarley, who's my favorite Argentinian sex bomb movie star that's still alive. And I never knew this book. And I'm sure he probably found it for a dollar somewhere. It isn't about money. It's about giving you a book that you've always wanted, even though you never knew it was out. That's the best present ever. Was she in that movie Fuego? Yes, she was. They were all directed by Armando Her not her husband, because he was married to somebody else. And (laughs) I I recently met his grandson, who's produced many Oscar-winning movies. Wow, really? Yeah. 
Well, gosh, I, I love Fuego. That's a that's a classic. That one. And the other one is pretty good. It's called Fury, where she falls in love with a horse. That's pretty good. So this love of Christmas, I assume it must have started in childhood, but I also know you liked to dress up. Was there ever a conflict? I never liked to dress up, really. I mean, even today, like on Halloween, if I people invite me to a party, if I, if I had to wear a Halloween costume or die, I would choose death. <laughs> but so I didn't dress up. I mean, as a kid, I was, yes. I yeah, mean, Captain Hook. That's what I was yes. thinking about. Yeah. But that wasn't that much. And I used to mentally be dressed up. You know, I had a little little hook I used to wear as Captain Hook, and I put paper clips and wedged them in my gum so I could have braces and be a teenager. But I, I wasn't into cosplay. You know, I'm not now sitting around the house dressed like Margaret Hamilton. <laughs> well, uh, how about have you become an icon or a role model for people to cosplay as you? Well, I've seen that. In many colleges I go, they have John Waters lookalike guns, and I'm happy to say lesbians usually win. And then this year, I don't know if you saw that article in the New York Times was about the John Waters summer camp that I had that was truly amazing because they had a contest where people came dressed as characters from my movies, but they had the most obscure knowledge of my movies that these characters they came by. That was pretty fascinating. So, yes, certainly Divine is the easiest one to do for any kind of fat man or woman. And um, a lot of them come as Edith a lot, but they, they come as me too. Yeah, and I'm not hard to do either. Just a black sports jacket, a white shirt, an eyebrow pencil, and your hair slicked back. I think the mustache should be authentic or just go home. Well, mine isn't. I mean, mine is half authentic. But, uh, you know, that is called a pencil mustache for a reason. So you don't like to dress up, but you like to see other people dressed up. Well, I like to see other people dressed up as my characters. That's like a contest or something. I feel bad for people on Halloween when I see them drunk, alone, waiting for the bus, dressed as a half of a pony. (laughs) You know, it's a very Diane Arbus moment. Indeed it is. Well, talking about uh, being a fan of your films and and Christmas, I was just wondering about what Christmas might be like in Mortville. Have you ever considered? (laughs) Mortville Christmas, that's a good one. Well, you know, Mortville was built out of garbage. That was the whole thing. So I still believe that it is even more important to spend little money on Christmas presents that are incredibly smart Christmas presents that are you spent so much time searching for something for somebody's interest that you know. To me, that is the perfect Christmas present. So Mortville would be that you bought all your Christmas presents. Um, you found them in the garbage. Or even better, we used to have them give each other the present that you would hate the most. That's a theme that's kind of fun. And one year somebody gave me the soundtrack to Rocky. And that started because we were in my apartment. And that time I lived in a high rise, I threw it out the window, which was probably irresponsible because I guess plunging down in seven stories could have hit somebody. But um, that's a good theme is to give presents to have a party where you give someone each name, somebody you think that they would hate the most. Have you ever thought about making a Christmas movie? Yes, I have, actually. Fruitcake, which is a movie that I got a big development deal to make and never got made, and it was a children's Christmas movie. I still think I'll make it one day. What drives you to want to do that? What What would be the attraction of making a film for children about Christmas? Well, it's the only genre I haven't really satirized yet. I've done every every one of my movies is a genre that I satirize, really. Mondo Trasha was a shockumentary. Multiple Maniacs was a gore movie. Pink Flamingos was a midnight movie. Female Trouble was a crime movie. Desperate Living was a political movie. 
Uh, Hairspray was a dance movie. Crybaby was a musical. Serial Mom was True Crime 2. Uh, Self the Minute was was Battle of Algiers. And uh, <laughs> A Dirty Shame was a sexploitation movie. So the only thing left I haven't done is a children's movie. Oh, that's quite a litany. John Waters, thank you so much for your time. We'll be looking forward to seeing you here in Tucson. It's uh, gonna I be... love coming to Tucson. It's a great city. Yeah, name something you like. Tell me. I just like being there because it's kind of like it used to be like the Berkeley of your state. <laughs> that's interesting. Um, I just heard about the story of Andy Warhol trying to shoot a movie out here. And I... Oh, he did. He shot Lonesome Cowboys there. Well, they shot part of it because they sort of got ran out of town. The police came. Mm-hmm. No, well... That happens sometimes early in your career. It's usually good for your career if that happens. I don't I don't trust anybody that hadn't been to jail once. Do, do, do. Christmas time is here. Do, do, do. Christmas time is here. Christmas time is coming. Do, do, do. The John Waters Christmas Tour will bring plenty of holiday spirit for mature audiences to the Rialto Theater in downtown Tucson Saturday, December 2nd at 8 p.m. For more than 10 years, a University of Arizona-operated camera has been orbiting Mars aboard NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, taking tens of thousands of detailed photos of the red planet's surface. And it turns out red is just one in the diverse palette of Martian colors. Several hundred images from the High Resolution Imaging Science Experiment, or HiRISE, comprise a book from the University of Arizona Press. AZPM science producer Sarah Hammond spoke to two of the co-authors, Alfred McEwen and Candace hansen Koharchik, about their work. When we first saw our images, they were so beautiful, we knew we had to find a way to share them. How did you select the images from your thousands and thousands? Uh, We had a process of asking all the high-rise team members and participants to choose their favorite images and write initial captions for them. And that gave us um, 700 of them or something. We had this large number. And then we went through the painful process of killing our children to call it down to (laughs) about 300 so you wouldn't get a hernia lifting up the book. We were able to start out with 700 beautiful images with the captions Um, already drafted. But then uh, Alfred and I went through all of the captions and rewrote them to sound more like a single person had written them and have approximately the same level of technical uh, detail. But it was hard. It was hard to take away 300 beautiful shots of Mars. They are a little different than what's posted on the web. The the full images are enormous. And so uh, what we did was to crop out Uh, the area of interest showing some feature of particular interest. And then once you crop out a smaller area, you can also uh, stretch the data a little differently to to enhance the contrast relative to just that particular area. And in some cases, you can use uh, techniques to enhance the colors as well. So we gave it a little bit of extra processing, but the raw data is all on our website. The color is uh, taken from our filters, which are not exactly what your eyes would see if you were standing on Mars. And so that gives it sort of an, an extra colorfulness and drama to the, to the color that you wouldn't necessarily see yourself standing there. If there were Martians, they would evolve eyesight more like uh, what our camera has. That's longer <laughs> wavelengths, see through the dust better. Right. And what do you want the reader to take away from this book? That Mars is beautiful.
I mean, that's really the theme here. It is beautiful, and our camera does a great job of revealing that, and diverse. You know, that we really tried to preserve the diversity of Mars and many different trains and landforms. The way that we organized it is so that people, if they don't just open it in the middle somewhere, uh, they can start at the beginning and train their eyes to see the different sorts of uh, features in the different images. So we start with sand dunes, which are recognizable, and then we work our way to the uh, more subtle features that are a little more challenging to recognize. And what are some of your favorite images that are included in this book? This, the topic or what you're seeing or the color? But just tell me, you know, what's very important to you? My favorites tend to be the more colorful, the, the more gaudy, actually, colorful ones. I have several picked out that I want to make into scarves. My favorite are those that correspond to special events. For example, the very first image we took from the low orbit, so the full resolution showing the sharpness of Mars. We, we picked a good one on the floor of Alice Marineris, and that's on page 367 of this book. <laughs> that's one. Others that are special are the first image we took of Opportunity Rover, which had just arrived at Victoria Crater, and we actually could see the rover, and we could see the tracks, and you could see where the rover stopped and turned. And I looked at that, and wow, we can spy on them and see what they did. You know, <laughs> Another was uh, Phoenix descending on the parachute. That was a wild idea that I laughed when I first heard it, and the probability of actually getting the picture seemed low, but but we nailed it, and it's a very spectacular picture. We did that again for Curiosity, much bigger parachute, but the first one's always the best. So let's talk about the instrument a little bit. How is high-rise different from other space cameras? High-rise is still the most powerful telescope ever sent to another planet. It's not as powerful as Hubble Space Telescope, for example, but that's in, in Earth orbit. So it takes very high-resolution images, and it's basically a big digital camera. We have 14 CCD detectors that are arrayed across the, the field of view with extra in the middle for color. And the way it images is really very different because we are racing over the surface at 3.2 kilometers per second. That means for a, a 30 centimeter square pixel on the ground, we have an exposure time of 0. 0.000 something seconds, one seconds. Uh, so what we do is we use TDI, where we basically image that little patch of ground 128 times and add up the signal. So it's a unique camera in that sense. Sarah Hammond spoke with Alfred McEwen and Candace Hansen Koharchik about Mars, the pristine beauty of the Red Planet, published by the University of Arizona Press. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.